Okay, welcome back to our journey through the book of Galatians together here in the listener's commentary. In our last session, we looked at Galatians 3, 15 through 22, and that session ends by talking about what, why the law? What's the purpose of the law? And Paul ends that section by saying that the law kind of was a Johnny-come-lately. It was added in, and it was really, its job was to lead us to faith in Christ, to shut us up, to lock us up, to kind of keep us kind of in place until the faith should come, until Messiah should come, the, the, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Here in this section, we're going to pick up right there at Galatians 3.23, and we're going to walk all the way down through the first part of chapter 4, because in our very real sense, they all go together. And yet, it's sort of a hard break between 3.22 and 3.23, because 3.23 really picks up right where 3.22 left off. So, we've got to keep that verse in mind. Paul has said in 3.22 that the Scripture has shut all men up, uh, under sin in order till the promise should come. 3.23 picks up and say, now, before faith came. So that's where we're at. We're still wrestling with why the law and what was the law's job. And Paul is going to give us more details here uh, in 3.23 and following. So let's read. He says, before faith came. Now, hold on. Let's just think clearly. Wasn't there faith in the Old Testament? Of course there was. Paul has been pointing that out all through this chapter. Abraham, in the Old Testament, is the, the model exemplar of faith. He is the, the one whom all who are going to be in God's family are going to have faith like Abraham, Paul said. So there definitely was faith in the Old Testament. So what does he mean when he says, but before faith came? Well, literally, it's before the faith came, and thus it's specific faith. It's definite faith here, and it is specifically the faith that has Jesus as its object, the faith that believes in the fulfillment of the seed promise, the faith that believes in Jesus as Messiah. So before that faith came, in other words, prior to the coming of Messiah, before the faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. The we here probably means we Jews. Um, it was the Jews that were living under the law and all who had converted to uh, the law to Judaism, who were proselytes to that, we were kept in custody under the law. So the law's job was this keeping people in custody, locking people up, shutting them up. It put boundaries around people, named transgressions, and says, here, here you are. Here's where you live. This is what you do. Paul's going to flesh out this imagery a little more fully with a, a whole different metaphor here in just a second. But before the faith came, prior to coming of Messiah, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to that the faith that would later be revealed. And so the law's job was to kind of keep people hemmed in prior to the coming of faith. Now Paul's going to bring in a whole new metaphor that would have been incredibly familiar to their day and age that we're going to have to make sure we think clearly about so we understand the role of the law. This is so helpful to us in understanding the whole purpose of the Old Testament law. So verse 24, he says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Let's process what he's just said there. The imagery is... Uh, bound up in the word translated tutor here. So the law has become our tutor. In uh, American English, when we think of the word tutor, we think of somebody who helps us with our schoolwork, right? 
they are an expert in math and they're going to tutor us in math or they're an expert in English. They're going to tutor us in English grammar and all of that. That's what we mean by the word tutor. The word translated that lies behind the English word tutor here, though, is much broader than that. So the, the Greek word here is um, comes uh, basically, if you like transliterated it, it would be pedagogue. The word is pedagogue in Greek. And what does that mean? Well, it referred to a very specific role, particularly in, in more of a wealthy family that was everywhere present in the Greek and Roman world of Paul's day. Um, a family would have a very entrusted servant, right? Like a servant who was very trusted, been part of the family for a long time, and this servant was going to become the pedagogue for their child as this child grew up. In other words, this child was going to be like, or this pedagogue was going to be like super nanny. This pedagogue was going to be responsible for pretty much the, the daily ins and outs of the child, helping them get dressed, helping them get their schoolwork done, helping them get to school, get home from school, and basically do all the care for this child, kind of the daily activities to make sure everything got taken care of for this child. And the child was entrusted to the pedagogue's care until a certain time period, until an age set by the father. So that's sort of the picture here. And so Paul is saying the law is like a pedagogue that was supposed to lead us to uh, our growing up years to Messiah so that we may be justified by faith. And this image would have been readily uh, apparent to everyone in Paul's day. And so the law's job was sort of a short-term and temporary pedagogue to kind of keep us in check, to make sure we got everything done, to teach us the rules, to teach us what we had to know, to, to keep everything going the way it was supposed to go until its end point, that it had an end point, just like the pedagogue had an end point. Here, the end point is the coming of Messiah. And so its whole job is to lead us to Messiah so that we might be justified by faith, just like Abraham was justified by faith, though his faith was in the promise of God to give him uh, descendants, our faith is specifically in the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, the seed of Abraham, the Messiah himself, so that we can be justified, that is, declared right, put in a right relationship with God, that we can be declared not guilty and righteous in God's sight, given a favorable verdict before him, that we could stand whole and righteous before God. Paul goes on in verse 25 to flesh out that imagery a little bit more. He says, but now, verse 25, now that, now that the faith has come, now that the fulfillment of this promise has come, that's the idea of the faith here, the, that Messiah has come and all of that. Now that we've reached this point in the timeline of God's plan, now that the faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. The day has come for us to be released from our tutor who's going to take us to school and bring us home and make sure we do our homework and help us get dressed and control our whole life, right? That's the imagery he's picturing here. Now that the faith has come, the, the tutor's job is done. The pedagogue's job is done and it's over. We're no longer under the pedagogue. Now notice what he says in verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. You have... Uh, uh, basically move from being a minor under the care of the pedagogue to now reaching the age of adulthood. You've moved from wearing the child's toga to wearing the adult toga in Roman custom, right? You've moved to adulthood where now 
you are no longer under the pedagogue because you're all now sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Um, don't be offended by the 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 gender-specific word son. That is intentional in this context because we're talking about inheritance, right? We're talking about inheriting the promised Abraham. He used that language in the preceding sections. And so that is important, and it will be very important for what he's about to say in just a little bit. But we need to bear that in mind that the reason he the, the word sonship shows up is because of the language of inheritance in the context, all right? And so it doesn't exclude Females, it's not male specific, as Paul will make clear very shortly. All right, so let's keep reading. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, through believing in Christ Jesus, through trusting in Him, not through keeping the Old Testament law. Verse 27 amplifies even how that all happened, right? He says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There, there was this specific moment where you moved from being a minor to no longer a minor, where you moved from being under the pedagogue to being no longer under the pedagogue. You moved from being outside of Messiah to inside of Messiah, and that moment had to do with your baptism, that faith is the means, baptism is the moment here, in the way Paul's wording this, that, that marks out this, this significant change in your life. And so, so you are all sons of God through faith for all of you, verse 27, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now you wear the robes of Christ. You are now in Christ and the Father sees you. You're united with Christ and the Father sees you like Christ and you have entered into him. That's the point. And your baptism marks that out. It's a significant moment that marks out this, this change in your life. And now he draws out this big implication from the, the realm of inheritance that this is why it's so important and that's why this is why it doesn't exclude, um, that's why the male specific language isn't offensive to and doesn't exclude females. Listen to what he says in verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All right, let's be really clear on what he's getting at. Um, and this is where the language of inheritance in the context becomes so important. Under Old Testament Jewish law, who could inherit anything? Well, by and large, there were a few exceptions, but by and large, it was freeborn Jewish males. They were the heirs to the family estate and the family property. Freeborn Jewish males. Well, in the context of what Paul has been developing, who can inherit the promised Abraham? And what he wants us to say is, anybody and everybody. It doesn't matter. Those distinctions, those Old Testament legal distinctions no longer apply. Are you, are you a Gentile? You can inherit the promised Abraham by faith in the Messiah. Are you a Jew? You can inherit the promised Abraham by faith in the Messiah. Are you a slave? Faith in the Messiah gets you in on the inheritance as well. And if you're free, same thing. Male or female, all you got to do is believe in Jesus, the Messiah. You are all one in the Messiah. And so who can inherit the promised Abraham? Anybody. Males, females, slave, free, Jews, Gentiles. It is open to all. Now, having said that, a really important distinction about verse 28 that 
in our cultural context, in America at least, in our, our modern world, is so often overlooked. And that is, this doesn't mean that there are no distinctions. Paul recognizes these distinctions. When you read all of his letters, he'll, he'll say, hey, if you're a slave, don't worry about trying to become free. Unless it's totally available to you, then, you know, go for your freedom, right? He doesn't tell Gentiles they need to become Jews. In fact, the very point of Galatians is he's arguing against Gentiles becoming Jews. Like, you come in as Gentiles, oh Gentiles and Jews. If you want to keep practicing some cultural customs as Jews, great, do that. Come in as Jews, right? So he's not obliterating distinctions, and that's really important because that means he's not obliterating the male and female distinctions. Boys are still boys and girls are still girls. Male and female have distinctions, and they're different. Paul recognizes the various distinctions between classes and groups, between wealthy and poor, free and slave, Gentile, Jew, male and female. Paul recognizes that everywhere in his letters. His point isn't to flatten everything out and say that you that those distinctions no longer exist. His point is to say that regardless of those distinctions, everyone is welcome in God's family and they come into the family, not because they're the same, they come into the family as equals because they're in the Messiah. And so they're equal, not the same. So don't hear this verse as saying, oh, it flattens everything out, we're all the same. We're not the same. And Paul recognizes that, but we are equal and we are welcome into the family of God simply by faith in the Messiah. Whether we're uh, freeborn Jewish males or whether we're Gentile slaves, whether we're male or female. And so he ends this section in verse 29, this first little bit of it in Galatians 3.29 by saying, and if you belong to the Messiah, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Notice that, that the seed promise, this line of promise that we talked about in our last uh, recording, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Messiah, now balloons out again into all who are in the Messiah. And so if you are in the Messiah, then you are Abraham's offspring, literally seed. And you are, here's, here's the inheritance language again, you are heirs according to the promise. You now inherit all that God has for his people, all that God has promised to his family. You inherit the promise of new creation in a world reborn someday. You inherit all of that because you are in the Messiah and you're part of Abraham's family. And that, that means those stories about Abraham, that's your family history too. You're part of his, his heritage. You are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now that ends chapter 3, but the thought of heirs and inheritance and the significance of all of that continues into the first paragraph of chapter 4. So let's continue on reading into Galatians chapter 4 and hear how Paul fleshes this out and it fleshes out the significance of all of this for us. He says in Galatians 4.1, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, even though he is the owner of everything. So notice 4.1 um, echoes the end of three, chapter 3 with the word heir. 3.29, your heirs according to the promise. And then 4.1 picks up with, as long as the heir is a child. And so that's the connection, and that's why we really need to keep continuing through this. And also notice that he says, when he says, as long as the heir is a child, the particular word for child here is 
Anapios in Greek, which means small child, like toddler, an infant child. We're talking a little child, definitely a minor, right? Paul wants to make that very clear. We're talking about a small child. And so he says, as long as the heir, the one who's going to inherit the estate, is a small child, he does, doesn't differ at all from a slave, even though he's owner of everything. And so you have a slave who's a servant in the house that, the, that someday the small child is going to be over this whole estate, over all this property. And yet, practically speaking, at this point in time, they're largely the same. The child doesn't have any authority. The slave, you know, he's a servant in the house. In fact, the servant might be the pedagogue who actually takes care of the child. Practically speaking, they're the same, right? But, verse 2, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So, you have this minor, this little child who's going to grow up, and he's under, he's under household authorities. He's under servants as the pedagogue, right? He's under, he's under all these guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Well, these, in the context of Paul's argument or thought world, the guardians and managers are now roughly parallel to the law. The law kept us in custody in 323. It was the guardians and managers keeping charge of us until the date set by the father. There's going to come a time period when this child is going to reach the age of adulthood. There will be a ceremony and he will... You know, he will move from being a minor and now being one who actually has authority over the servants and authority in the house, and someday he'll be heir over everything. So now Paul draws out the point for us in relationship to salvation history and relationship to the law and the issues going on in the churches of Galatia. So verse 3, chapter 4, says, So also we, here's the point of comparison with the analogy, so also we, probably meaning we Jews again, He's thinking in terms of salvation history, we Jews in custody under guardians and managers, meaning the law during that time before Messiah. That's probably what he has in mind. So, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. The word translated elemental things is stoikia in Greek, and originally it referred to things in a line. Then it came to refer to like the ABCs, like the basics of learning. And then by extension, the basics of learning anything. So you see this word referred to like the elementary principles of religion or, or of Christian religion in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12. Now some suggest that we should hear this in terms of like elementary spirits, like the ruling spirits of the universe. The problem is, is there's really no direct evidence that the term was being used that way in Paul's day. We have from times after Paul that it was used in that way, but we have no evidence that it was used uh, by anyone in Paul's day that way. And so it's probably best to not understand it that way here or really anywhere else in the New Testament. But certainly here, I don't think it makes sense, particularly in the flow of the argument. We're talking about the basic things, the elementary things. Specifically, we're talking about the Old Testament Law, and we're talking about the, the time period in salvation history that was marked by being under that covenant of the Mosaic law. And Paul pictures that as the elementary time period, like sort of like the growing up years of God's people. Like this is when you were in elementary school and middle school, and these were the growing up years for God's people. So think more in terms of like elementary school. And so he says, while we were children, when we were minors, we were under the 
elementary things of the world. And that was a time period, he says, of bondage. We were under control. We were being ruled by those things. And bondage is important because Paul wants to make the point, and he will very shortly in chapter 4 make the point that the law led to bondage. It led to slavery, and yet we have been set free from that. And so he introduces this word bondage here for us for what he's about to say later. So the law was sort of like a a ruler that controlled God's people before the coming of Messiah. And it was sort of like elementary school. It was like the ABCs of for God's people. And thus, Ben Witherington, in his commentary on Galatians, says that this refers to the basic teachings, which were appropriate for God's people during the period of their spiritual minority, but not after the new condition came, the eschatological condition of the new creation had come to pass in the Messiah. We've moved to a new history. We've moved now from the era of spiritual minority to spiritual adulthood now that Messiah has come. And so it's time to move on beyond the ABCs that were introduced through the Mosaic Law. And so Paul says, keeping the analogy alive in verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, that is the time marked out by the Father, the time to move from spiritual minority to spiritual adulthood. So when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Just a couple of notes. The word sent forth actually is not just a general word for sending out, but it has a prefix on it in Greek, and it really implies the idea of being with the Father and being sent away from the Father, and so it hints at the incarnation. It doesn't directly state it here, but it hints at Jesus pre-existing with the Father, being sent away from the Father to be born. And notice verse 4 also says, born of a woman, and I think our our reaction oftentimes is, well, yeah, hello, duh, how else are you born? Of course he was born of a woman, and that's exactly the point. Jesus was born just the way anyone else was born. That's really important. Uh, We often refer to the virgin birth as the miracle, and obviously it certainly is, but the birth was normal. It was the conception that was miraculous. So he was born of a woman, um, and he was born, notice, under the law. In other words, he was born under that same, in that same era, under the same supervisor. He was born as a Jew. Um, why was he born this way? Well, Galatians 4, 5 says, in order that, that's a purpose statement. Here's the reason why. Here's the purpose or the goal for, for God sending his son under the law. In order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Uh, To redeem means to purchase their freedom. Uh, The idea of redemption always means to pay a price to set someone or something free. And so Jesus, God's son, was born of a woman and born under the law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that they were in bondage to it, they were enslaved to it, Uh, they needed to be set free from it. And so they are redeemed out from under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And I'm guessing the we there is probably we all. It's kind of hard to tell sometimes when Paul shifts, but probably we all, meaning we Jews and Gentiles alike, because of where he goes in verse 6, he talks about you, you Gentiles. And so we all, so in order that he might redeem Jews out from under the law, that we all might receive the adoption as sons. We might be adopted as God's into God's family, as God's children, so that we could be heirs according to the promise. And so he says in verse 6, and because you are sons. Again, 
Don't be offended by the male-specific language. It fits the context of air that he's dealing with and inheritance and all of that. The point is because you're part of God's family, you're, you're his son, you're his daughter, and you have the rights and privileges of a family member. In fact, adoption, though not widely practiced among the Jews, they really didn't have a practice of adoption. In the Greco-Roman world, it was quite widely practiced. And to be adopted among the Greeks or the Romans um, essentially gave you just as high, if not higher status, than a, a, a birth child, like an adopted child, an adopted son couldn't be rejected. That, that adoption couldn't be terminated. You couldn't lose your privilege of inheritance. You were going to inherit what, what the family had to offer that you were adopted into. And so that's the point. We have been brought in legally into God's family. We're now part of his family, whether male or female, boy or girl. You're now a son or a daughter of the living God. And because you are his child, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Catch this. We have now, by faith in Messiah, been filled with the spirit which is where chapter 3 began. We've received his spirit. It's the very spirit of God's own son, which that phrase is important too. Like we often can picture God the Father. We obviously know Jesus and he was flesh and we can read the stories about the Holy Spirit. We don't totally get that, but the spirit is the spirit of God's own son, which means what Jesus is like is what the Holy Spirit is like, that, that the Holy Spirit is a person like God the Father, a person like the Lord Jesus. And so his very own spirit has been poured out into our hearts, and we cry out now, Abba, Father. couple notes on that. Both these words, Abba, Father, are the, the words for dad. Right? They're the words of the language of intimacy that give that somebody who's now part of the family, this is what they call their father. They call him dad, right? And Abba is the, the typical Jewish word for that. Pater, the word translated father, is the typical Greek word for that. That's intentional in the flow of thought, right? Like it doesn't matter whether you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, you get to call God dad. Abba, Pater, Dad. You get to call God that simply because you're in the Messiah. And so whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you're part of the family, and God is your dad. He is your father. Therefore, verse 7. Here's the grand conclusion to all this. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer a servant. You're a son. You're a daughter. And if you're a child, if you're a son or a daughter, then you are an heir through God. You inherit God, you inherit all that God is doing and all that God is planning for this world. You're an, an heir according to the promise. You're an heir of God himself and everything that he has to offer you. Do you hear how significant this is? Like, this, this God has an open door policy to his family. Anybody and everybody is welcome and they can come in and in their own context and in their own language, they get to call God Father, they get to call him dad. And as such, they get to inherit everything he has to offer. So as we wrap up this, this section, I would say to you, bask in your status. Never forget it's a gift simply by faith in the Messiah, right? 
Um, but bask in it nonetheless. You're not a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are a child of the living God, not just a son or daughter of anyone, but a child of the infinite, eternal, almighty God, and you're an heir to him and to everything he has to offer. That's who your dad is, so bask in it. And this wasn't just some tragic mistake, and now God's got this loser of a child that he's got to put up with. No, he chose us via adoption. Legally, he went through the work to make us his own. He did so by sending his own son and pouring out the spirit of his son into us. And he has invited you and I into the family. And he has said, here, 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 here's a chair at the family table. He's pulled up a chair to the family table. He set a plate and some silverware out, and he seated you at the, at the family table with all the rights and privileges of the family. And he didn't, he didn't bring you in as some ugly stepchild, but a bona fide son and daughter with all the rights and privileges thereof. And I picture it like, you know, we're welcomed at this family, and here's the infinite almighty God, and and he said, oh, hey, welcome. You two are my son. You two are my daughter. You two are my heir. And we started to reply with, oh, thank you, Mr. God. And he was quick to interrupt. No, 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 no. Not so formal around here. Mr. God, that's silly. No, Mr. God, just call me dad. Just call me dad. And that, that's who you are. You're a child of the living God. And he's your dad. And you have all the rights and privileges thereof. That's the point of this whole section that we've looked at in this recording. God has welcomed you to his family. And it doesn't matter your background, your race, your heritage. It doesn't matter whether you come from a, a decent, good family or a broken down family. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. None of that matters. What matters is whether or not you're in the Messiah. And if you put your faith in Jesus the Messiah, then you're family. And God is your dad.